Welcome to Becoming Referrable, the podcast designed to help you become the advisor people can't help talking about. I'm Julie Littlechild, and today Steve and I are thrilled to be speaking to Steve Sandusky. Now, if you're a fan of podcasts, you probably already know Steve for the three, count them, three great podcasts he delivers to this industry. Now, it's fair to say that Steve wears a few hats. He is the co-founder and CEO of ROL Advisor, which is a software and training company for financial advisors. He works directly with many top advisors to help them run more effective businesses, and he's a speaker and workshop facilitator. But he also brings these very deep insights from past roles. In the mid-1990s, Steve helped launch and build a multi-billion dollar AUM RIA. For 11 years in the 2000s, he was the managing partner of Peak Advisor Alliance, which is now Carson Group Coaching. So we talked to Steve about what it really takes to excel in this industry. And he takes a really interesting journey that focuses at first glance on how the famous runner Elliot Kipchoge, and you'll know him for breaking the sub two hour marathon barrier, but Steve ties what it took to do that directly back to the lessons that we can learn about doing great things in our businesses. And with that, let's get straight to the conversation with Steve. Well, Steve, welcome to the podcast. So happy to have you here. Yes. Well, I am excited to be here. It's great to have a conversation with you, too. I've known both of you for a number of years now, and I'm a big fan of the podcast, so it's a real thrill for me to be on the show. Well, thank you. And I know you're used to asking the questions, but we've got you in the hot seat today. So you're ours for the next yeah, 30 minutes. Right. Yeah. <laughs> the tables are turned here. Tables that's right. You're on the other turned. side of the microphone today, my friend. That's right. Um, but hey, look, I've, I've got a ton of questions to ask you, but um, can you just start by telling us a little bit about the business and the work that you're doing with advisors? Yeah. So I would say the simplest way to describe what I do is I'm in the business of helping financial advisors be more successful. And there's really three ways that I do that. One is through one-on-one business coaching. So I work directly individually with advisors or partners and on -on one-on-one business coaching. Second is I do media and content marketing work. So in addition to the podcast that I host for my business, I also host several other shows or co-host those shows, and we do content marketing, blogging on their behalf as well. And then the third piece is I co-founded a software business with my business partner, Mitch Anthony. The company is called ROL Advisor, which stands for Return on Life Advisor. And so I run that business on a day-to-day basis. And what we do there is we've created a series of digital tools for financial advisors that help them become life-centered planners as opposed to money-centered planners. And then we've wrapped marketing support around that. We've wrapped training around that. And uh, it's been a, been a great business that we've had going here pretty much under the radar for the past couple years or so. And uh, so that's been very exciting. So yeah, so ultimately all about helping advisors be more successful in three different ways that I do that. And Steve, you, you mentioned that you have a podcast. We should let everybody know it's the Between Now and Success podcast. It's fabulous. Everybody should listen to it. I, I, I love a lot of the stuff you do on there. Oh, I appreciate that. Thank you. 
Um, so, I mean, it's interesting too how, as you've been working with advisors, some of these opportunities have emerged, I guess, as you start talking about content and media, I guess that created an opportunity, right, where, where advisors are looking for a lot more support. Um, but I wanted to really kind of focus in on some of the fundamentals. And I read uh, everything I can get my hands on that you put out, because one of the things I really love about your work, I mean, I find it really thoughtful, first of all, and I appreciate that. But I love how you bring in outside insights and experience and then really connect the dots to our industry. I just find it incredibly interesting. And and I, I was intrigued by one of the articles that you wrote recently which on the surface was about when Kipchoge broke the sub two-hour marathon barrier. I mean, that was uh, what you wrote about. But what you really found was some incredible connections between how he and Nike prepared for that run and how advisors can build referable businesses. So I thought it might be interesting to just structure some of our our talk around that because there was so much in there. And there was this five-step process that that do you outline? So first of all, can you just tell us what those five steps are? And then maybe we can dig into some of them. The five steps that Nike went through or how I mm-hmm. related those to what we're doing? Yeah, just sort of overall. And then maybe we can uh, sort of peel back the onion and deep dive into each of them. Sure. Yeah. So so I've got a little background in running myself back in high school and college. And so I took a little bit of an interest in what Kipchoge and Nike and Ineos were trying to do here to break that sub two-hour marathon. And as I did some research around it, I discovered that they really went through a whole process. And I really identified five steps in the process that they went through to try and break this two-hour barrier. The first thing that they did was they had to find the right athletes, okay? So they had to select who are the athletes that even have the potential to to break a two-hour marathon. So that was like step one for them. The second was... They really had to create an environment that made it as easy as possible to break that record. So things like the course that they chose, the setup, the weather, the location, those types of things was number two. Third, of course, was like training. So what kind of training plan do we need to put in place that is going to give this athlete the highest probability of breaking the two-hour marathon? Fourth was uh, nutrition and hydration. So, of course, if you want to be a great athlete, you've got to eat the right foods. You've got to hydrate. You measure all these things to know for your particular body what is the nutrition and hydration formula and timing that's going to work best for you. And then fifth was, and this is where Nike played a huge role, was in the equipment. So the running shoes that you use, the clothing that you wear, those types of things that can reduce, even if it's a fraction of a percent, increase your efficiency because of your equipment over the course of 26 miles, that can make a huge difference. So I really looked at those five steps that Nike went through and realized that there's really a a corollary to what advisors do in each of those five steps. Yeah. And so, um, you know, you started with, and, and you said Nike started with, uh, with athlete selection. And, and so can you tell us a little bit about that and then um, how you translated that into what it means for advisors? Yeah. So, so Nike, they really started with a list of hundreds of distance runners, many of whom that they had worked with over the years. And they, based on some analysis, they narrowed it down to a list of about 18 runners and then they invited those 18 to come to Nike's headquarters. 
they did a variety of different tests with them. And then as, as part of that, they ultimately um, chose three of those athletes to try and break the sub two hour marathon. That was back in 2017 was the first time they tried it. And they identified three of those 18. So really went through a thoughtful process to identify who are the ones that we think are capable. And then from those, let's narrow it down to an even smaller number that we think really are the ones that could make this happen. And so you relate that to team in the article. Can you talk about how that connects for advisors? Yeah. So just like Nike was trying to select the athletes that had the highest probability of breaking the two-hour marathon, advisors have to do the same thing in terms of building their team. They've got to identify who are the candidates that we think are going to be the best fit for our organization that are going to be able to do the kind of work that we need them to do to be successful here. So you know, I think there's a, a, a direct correlation there between Nike trying to find the best runners and advisors or any business for that matter, trying to find, qualify, hire, and train the best people for the jobs that they have available. Huge challenge, right? I mean, you talked yeah. about, oh. <clears throat> you know, on your team, how was it you, everybody needs to be at least an eight out of 10 or something, I think you said, um, <laughs> which yeah. I'm a 7.4, so it's a bit of a problem. <laughs> well, well, we'll have to work well, on that. We'll work some coaching. <laughs> um, but, we'll get you some Nike shoes right. for that. But I mean, it's, I mean, what do you think advisors can do differently? Or there's some fundamental mistakes that you think they make that, that they don't end up saying, I've got everybody I need, or I can't find the right people, for example, we hear a lot. Yeah, I see, I see a couple things that advisors need to think about. One is in the hiring process itself is oftentimes advisors are trying to scramble. Maybe somebody quit. They want to hire someone quick because it's a small business and just being short one person could be, you know, 30% of the, of the employee force. You know, you just lose one person and you're down one third of your employee force. So it, it could be a big hit. So I think sometimes it's tempting to try and find the first person who looks like a reasonable fit. But I always encourage people to be thoughtful about the process, have a rigorous hiring process, use some type of assessment as part of your hiring process, whether it's a DISC assessment or a Colby index. There's a number of different ones out there. I'm currently using the DISC profile in the hiring process and what I coach on. And um, so I think just, again, be thoughtful about it. Think about what your culture is. Think about the kinds of people who are going to thrive in the environment that you have. And when you're hiring people, you hear people talk about, well, we're trying to hire for a cultural fit. And yeah, that's important. But I'd also say you want to hire for a cultural complement. So you want to hire people that are going to complement your culture in areas where maybe you're a little weak right now, but you know that this is a part of our culture that we need to improve. We need to enhance for us to be an organization that's going to be firing on all cylinders. So I think that's really step one is the hiring process, have that rigorous process and be intentional about that. And, uh, and then the second part is if you have someone on your team, you have to think about, do we have the right people? Because oftentimes if your business is growing fast, the people who got you to where you are today are not necessarily going to be the ones who are going to take you to where you want to go tomorrow. So I've got a couple of questions that I'd be happy to share with you if you'd like on 
how uh, questions. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, so, you know, if you have people on your team, I've got two questions that I, that I coach on and I say, okay, these are two questions that you need to ask yourself about each member of your team. And the first one is ask yourself on a scale of one to 10 with 10 being, they are a rock star. And one of course, being the opposite of that, how would you rate them just in their overall performance and contribution and value to the organization? And if you rate them a seven or lower, then I, I say you, you need to figure out how can you get them up to an eight within the next, say, 60 to 90 days. And if you can't get them up to an eight, then you need to move them out of the organization. And then the second question is, if one, you know, look at each of your team members and ask yourself if, if, each, if that person voluntarily came to me today and said, I'm leaving to take another job what would your immediate reaction be? Would you breathe a sigh of relief and think, oh, thank goodness, fire them? <laughs> or would it be, oh, shoot, man, what can I do to keep you here? I really don't want to lose you. Right. And so I think when you ask those two questions, you're going you're gonna to know if this person is a keeper or whether this is someone that I need to help find another opportunity that's going to be a better fit for them. Well, and so that you, you mentioned culture as you were talking to, about team, obviously they go hand in hand. And this is a conversation that has come up a few times on the podcast recently. Can you talk to us a little bit about, about the role of culture, the importance, and maybe how advisors need to think about that? Well, and Julie, if I could jump in too, if, if Steve, if you could, um, if you could define for us what you mean by culture first, and, and then and then a- a- answer what Julie was asking. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of people think of culture as this kind of squishy thing, and it's hard to get your arms around. It's hard to define. So when I think of culture, I think of the norms, the expectations, the behaviors, the way people behave when no one's looking. It's all those types of things that are just wrapped into one that make up the environment. And, and I've been in um, a, a variety of cultures that are very strong cultures where there are very specific norms on how you do things. And some, some cultures are very high performance cultures. So it's all about high performance. It's, it's a meritocracy and for example, they may have compensation programs that are heavily weighted toward incentive compensation because they want to give low base salaries, have high incentives because they want to reward people who are very high achievers and pay them a lot of money. There's other organizations I've worked with that are just the opposite. They definitely want to be high performing organizations, but they have a different philosophy of we don't pay bonuses. We pay high salaries to everybody because we want top performers but we don't want to give someone an incentive to not work with someone else on the team because, well, that's, that's not going to help me get my bonus. And so they just pay straight salaries to everybody and they want to create an organization that's all about the team. So there's an infinite number of ways that you can pull levers and create an environment that creates your, your culture, depending on what your personal philosophy is. And that's why one of the things that I'm a big fan of is for the leader of the organization to take some time, and I've got um, a number of things that, that questions that I ask them to go through to understand what your philosophy is. Just like, am I, a, you know, am I someone who wants to create a high incentive culture 
or am I uh, want to create a culture of we're all in this as one team and I want everyone to work together as one big happy team. So uh, I think you just have to be really intentional and thoughtful about how you create that culture in your organization. Well, and honest, right? I mean, I think there's some element of this is what I the culture should be, but you know what? It, it's it can be anything. It's just being consistent uh, from there, right? I mean, right, yeah. And I mean, you take someone like Amazon. We're all familiar with Amazon, you know. And I would I would even argue that as your organization gets larger, the one remaining moat that a company could have is the culture that you create. So let's take Amazon as an example. This is a company that has, what, 800 billion in market cap these days. I think at one point it was up to a trillion. Well, they're, they have a very unique culture. A lot of people have written about it. And one of their things is they think of every day as day one. So they want to have this startup mentality. And so they drill that into people's heads that every day is day one. We want you to be innovative. We want you to break break norms. We want you to be creative here and think like a scrappy startup, even though we have, what, 750,000 yeah, right. employees. You know? um, they also have what they call their 14 leadership principles. So these are things that Jeff Bezos and his leadership team have come up with over the years where they very clearly define these are our 14 leadership principles. And again, they drill that into people's heads and so when you get hired by Amazon, this stuff's going to, you're, you're going to learn this stuff and your business is going to be structured that way and, and you're going to work that way and, and, uh, and it's worked for them. And, and to, add to, um, to add to that and, and to add to what Julie just said, you know, Julie talked about being honest about it. And I think that there are two things that sort of come to my mind, things that I've heard out there also is first is, you know, that, that, that you are what you do. So one of the challenges is a lot of business leaders like to like to pick up on on these phrases or slogans or those kinds of things that sound really good. But in the end, it's actually what people do that is the culture, not so much what you say or what you say it is. And sort of related to that is that, you know, your values are what you're willing to tolerate. And it's not just, you know, what you say they are, but if you're, if, 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 if there are things that go on in your office that you, you don't jump right on top of and actively work to, to change, then that is what your value is, whether or not you really want to admit to it. Yeah, that's so true. Yeah. Your, your point there about your values or what you tolerate or um, you get what you allow, those those types of things, f for sure. And so if you do have corporate values or value system or philosophy, which I'm, I, I really encourage everyone to really have that and be thoughtful about it, is you have to live it. You have to support it. You have to reward it. You have to recognize it. When people are exhibiting those values and living the philosophy that you're trying to instill, you need to recognize that individually and in front of the organization so that people can see by example this is what we mean when we have this corporate value of being obsessed about the client you know here's an example of what mary did that showed how she was obsessed about taking care of the client and we just want everyone to see what a great example mary thank you that that kind of thing and and that sort of go ahead julian i was going to expand on that a little but I think you probably are thinking the same thing um, well no I was I was gonna I was wanted to talk about some of the other um, uh, 
points from the article. If you wanted to finish, was there something on this you wanted to finish up? Well, no, I, I you know, it, it that sort of brings us around to the whole idea of, of, of a toxic culture and, and, um, you know, when we talk about those kinds of things, you know, so how could an advisor recognize if they have a toxic culture? And, and then, you know, if, if they do, what, what kinds of things can you recommend that they do about it? Well, I, I think if you have a toxic culture, you're going to know. And I mean, examples are people are leaving the organization. You're having trouble hiring people. People aren't doing a good job taking care of their customer. If you're not treating your employees well, it's unlikely that they're going to treat the clients well. So I think most folks listening to this will know if they've got a toxic culture. And, um, you know, again, I think it, it can get back to the philosophy. And if you think, you know, we're, since we're talking here about sports and running, if you think about sports coaches, there are some coaches who are all about fear and terror and yelling and screaming and just trying to get people to perform well based on fear of, well, if I don't perform well, you know, there's, you know, there's going to be heck to pay here. There's other coaches who are more about support, positivity, building people up. And yes, we're all going to make mistakes and, and I'm going to correct those mistakes, but it's all in the form of, Hey, I love you, man. And you I know you can do this. Let's go out there. Let's make this happen. So those are two different philosophies, both of which can get great results. And there's coaches where you can have great examples of the first type of coach and great examples of the second type of coach. And both of them have won Super Bowl. So it's not that one is right or one is wrong, but they're just different. And so when you think about a toxic culture, some people would say fear-based cultures where it's all about, you know, if I don't do this right, I'm in big trouble. Some people would view that as a toxic environment. Some people might thrive in that, but um, yeah, I, you know, I, I think toxic cultures for the most part are pretty easy to see when you're in one. Well, let's talk about some of the other um, aspects that came out in that article that you wrote. You talked about learning, and I think again, all of these sort of connect. If if we're trying to grow and learn, I know we all love learning. But how did how did they talk about that with Kipchoge, and what are you seeing as the corollary for in advisors? Yeah, so for Kipchoge, you know, it was really about the training and in his, you know, Nike and Enios who were the two organizations that were really supporting him through this, they were really pushing the envelope in terms of trying to figure out what are the best training methods. Could they test new training methods? What's the best, uh, uh, you know, technology that they could use, uh, you know, like the shoes, for example, which I think we'll talk, we'll probably talk about here. That's, that's number five on my list here is, um, but yeah, so it's just about continuing to learn and improve. And it's the same thing with, with financial advisors is that we all know the world is just changing so darn fast. And if we're not keeping pace with the rate of change, if, if we're not learning faster than the world is changing, we're going to be falling behind immediately. And so one of the reasons why I do podcasts is because I want to talk to people and I want to continue to learn. And so usually when I identify a podcast guest, it's someone that I'm really curious about. It's someone that I want to learn from. And so it's, I have, I have to pinch myself <laughs> because I get to spend an hour with these <laughs> folks and learn from them. And then I get to share it with all my listeners. So that to me is one of the best ways that I learn is through doing the podcast and just trying to make sure that 
I'm continuing to push myself to learn new skills. And I think advisors need to do the same. One of the things I wonder about is getting more intentional about that. I th- I'm sure, like a lot of people, I find that learning starts to take a back seat the busier we get. And like a lot of things, it, it demands that we just hit pause and say, you know, how am I going to deal with that? Is it reading a certain, you know, number of times a week or, or what have you? Do, you? do you try to encourage advisors to set some specific goals around learning? I do. And I've... I've also spent a lot of time here recently learning more just about motivation and, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, there's, uh, you know, there's a whole bunch of different theories on motivation and you can, you know, you can choose to believe whichever theory you want to believe, but I tend to believe that there's a lot of different things that can motivate people. It's not just two or three things that everyone kind of falls into these buckets. I think there's lots of different things that can motivate people. One of which is curiosity. And that's something that I'm very high on. I'm someone who's very curious. I love to learn. I love to see new things, do new things, try new things, but not everybody is that way. And so while I can say to people, Hey, you really need to spend some time learning because if you don't, you can get complacent. You're going to fall behind people that, you know, these, these younger startup organizations, they're just going to pass you by if you don't learn. Well, that can go in one ear and out the other. Um, so I think somehow you need to, you know, if someone's not interested in learning or taking the time to make it happen. I think the key is we got to connect this idea of learning. If we th- think that's an important aspect of them continuing to be successful, we've got to connect the idea of learning with something else that's important to them. And, um, you know, we don't need to get too psychological there, but uh, from a more tactical standpoint, I mean, simple things that I like to do is I like to attend a conference that I've not uh, been to before that's outside of our industry because I want to get exposed to different things. And just like this Kipchoge example we're talking about, I like to connect the dots. So uh, I went to social media marketing, marketing world one year uh, which is really interesting. I went to Adobe's 99U conference one year, which was which was pretty interesting. And you just meet different people, you hear different things, and then I try and bring those back to what we're doing in our industry. Um, I think learning a new skill is important too. And that's a question I've been asking a lot of my guests on my podcast recently is, what's a new skill that you're learning? Because I'm just curious if people are making the effort to try and learn a new skill. Um, I think writing is important. Take having a journal. Uh, you may have seen. I was at the Schwab conference here recently. Julie, I saw you there. It was great to catch yeah, up with we you there. To each other. Um, but I took 14 pages of handwritten notes at the conference, yeah. and I think handwriting, which is something I've been doing more of in recent years, instead of just typing on my computer. I think there's just a different connection you make with your brain, and a different level of attention that you pay when you're handwriting versus typing. And so I'm a big fan of, of taking the time to actually write things down as well. Interesting. I, I don't know if we're going to get to all of the thing, all of the points in, in the, the article that you wrote, Steve, but I, I would really like to hear before we, before we have to close up, I'd really like to hear about um, the tools because you talked about Nike playing a significant role in providing tools to Kipchoge and uh, you relate that to an advisor's um, technology. And so could you elaborate a little bit for us on uh, on your how you see the connection there yeah so 
so when it comes to the, the, the technology that Nike was using, in their case, one of the big things was their shoes. And so they created a new shoe that they called Vaporfly. And, and supposedly, based on their research, it enabled Kipchoge to run somewhere between 4 to 5% faster with this shoe, this technology, than he would over the previous type of shoe that he would have worn. Well, of course, a four or five percent improvement over the course of twenty-six miles is huge. So, so you know that was a big thing. And then, as we think about in our business, in in our you know as an advisor, the kind of technology that we are um, using here, uh, you know, this is such a big question, and we could talk for hours. But the way that I maybe would, would frame it, and then and you can let me know maybe what direction you want to go here, but um, I always ask advisors, when you think about technology, I want you to think about your business model. For example, if, you, if your business model is like mass marketing, then you're probably going to have a high tech business model, and you're going to be like Betterment. So their business model, Betterment's business model is we want as many customers as we can get, and we want to have as little human communication as possible with them. So that's all about technology. And so they're a technology company first who just happens to do investing. Then you've got the opposite end. You've got a family office, which is a high-touch business, a boutique high-touch business that works with very wealthy people. So they're uh, an advisory firm, a wealth management firm first, who happens to use technology to support what they do, but they're all about the human to human interaction. So, so those are the two extremes. And as an advisor, I think you need to ask yourself, well, where do we want to fall on that spectrum? And most advisors who you know, are, are working uh, you know, with, with consumers and want to charge you know, reasonable fees are going to be you know, toward that, that end of the high touch. And so I think of technology as, Use the technology to make your back office more efficient. Use the client-facing technology to make things easy and efficient for the customer. But don't just try and offload your back office work to a customer by having them input a bunch of information because you don't want to do it. Okay, that's not customer service to me. That's just pushing your work off to the consumer. So only use technology client-facing when it makes their life easier and more accessible but then ultimately focus on doing everything you can to make that human to human interaction as amazing as possible. You know, the whole client experience thing that, that you two talk about, um, I, th I think it's just more and more important. So I'll just kind of stop there and see if there's, you know, any direction that you want to go with it from there. Well, it's, what's interesting to me is, is also, as you talk about that is the need to really draw a line in the sand, which I think we struggle with. So you could, for example, build the infrastructure for a low touch business and then have the opportunity to work with a high net worth client to think, oh, that's great. Well, we can do that. But you can't do that because you've built, you know, you've built a business to service a different group or, or similarly, you build a high touch technology and, and business platform, which means any other client is unprofitable unless you're dealing, you know, so just making that decision, I think uh, we want to do it all right. Do you see advi uh, advisors sort of struggling with that? Yeah, because no one likes to turn away a client, right? <laughs> and so it's um, it's it's hard 
for you to put that line in the sand as you talk about there. And I think it's just critical that we do that. And so I always, you know, I encourage advisors is to think about what is it that you are really trying to accomplish in your business? And, you know, I'd, I'd rather have you start narrow with that because we can always go wider down the road, but let's start with narrow. Let's get really good at what we do there. Then you can decide if you want to expand that and, and start branching out in a different area, but don't, don't bite off more than you can chew initially and, you know, master what it is that you're going to do first, get really good at that. And then we can look at expanding that uh, down the road. And, and so can you give any just sort of quick example of firms that you think have really knocked it out of the park in terms of, of using technology well or using their tools well? You know, I wish I could give you a great example. Um, I mean, I certainly hear of companies that say that they are doing a great job with technology. And, and when I get a chance to talk to those companies and start asking some questions, it, it reminds me of that picture where you, you're on a lake and you see a duck or a swan and they're just gracefully gliding through the water. But what you don't see is below the water, they're just massively paddling like crazy. You know, we've all, we've all seen that, that <laughs> right. image or can know what that image looks like. I think that's the case with a lot of organizations out there. On the outside, it looks like everything is just going, working seamlessly. But behind the scenes, it's not quite that way. And, and one of the reasons why I think this happens is because, sounds cliche, but we know technology is, just changes so fast. And what that means is that businesses are always in a state of becoming when it comes to technology. So just when we get to the point where we've mastered this CRM system, they come out with a new version, which is like a totally different interface. And I have to learn it all over again. Or just right. when I get comfortable with this piece of software, it gets acquired by some other company. And now I'm connected to this portfolio accounting system that I haven't used before. And now I got to use that. So it's like, we're always beginners when it comes to technology, we're always having to change things. And so I don't think anybody ever gets to a point where we say, man, we're just crushing it with technology. And if you do get to that point, it's going to be temporary because there's either A, going to be another company that's going to come along and, and do it better than you, or B, something's going to change with the technology and you're going to have to redo it or relearn it. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a, a great point. I'd love to hmm. just before we let you go, because I wanted to talk about something else that I read um, from you. And it's really the counterbalance to this state of becoming, I suppose. And that is also about pausing and looking at what we have been successful at, because I think we can get into a headspace where yep. everything does feel like it's in constant flux. And I saw this idea about writing a press release that describes your success in the last year. And, you know, we're getting pretty close here. So can you can you tell us about that particular idea and you think the impact that it can have? Yeah, yeah. Appreciate you bringing that up. So this is something that I that I'm talking to my clients about, and it, it's an idea of really trying to help you get clarity on what you want to accomplish over the next 12 months. And so you can do this anytime, whether it's at the end of the year or middle of the year, if you're just hearing this idea for the first time. But the idea is to write a press release as if it's 12 months from now. And I have three paragraphs in this press release. And so in the first paragraph, 
it would start off with your firm name. So let's say it's uh, uh, Smith & Jones Advisory Firm. So you say Smith & Jones Advisory Firm is pleased to announce that we, and then you fill in what you have accomplished over, the, over this past 12 months. So this is what you're really proud of. So that first paragraph is all about helping you clarify what is it that would have to happen for you to define this was a successful year. Okay, so that's the first paragraph. We're pleased to announce that we achieved blank. Then paragraph two starts with our client, and then you say um, Pete Jones. Our client, Pete Jones, said, and then you write a testimonial from Pete Jones. So this is an example of the amazing work that you've done for your clients, and Pete Jones is an example, and this is the glowing testimonial that he gave us this year because we've done such an amazing job for him. So that helps you clarify the value that you are delivering for your clients. And then the third paragraph starts with, we couldn't have achieved this without the, and then you fill in the blank, which is you basically describe the support that you received uh, this year. It could be from your team. It could be from some other resources. It could be from a technology partner you know, whoever it is that has helped you achieve what it is that you achieve. So, so those are really the three paragraphs. And again, it just forces you, like you said, to, to pause, to think about what does success look like over the next 12 months? That's the first paragraph. Paragraph two is what is the value that we deliver for our clients that they were, are so thrilled about that they would write us this glowing testimonial. And then paragraph three is who are the people that supported us in making all this happen? And I, you know, I imagine that connects pretty nicely to the theme of the podcast about becoming referable, because as much as this is about taking stock, it feels like you've just written stories that you can share with, with others. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 You know, and I'd even go, so, go ahead. Go ahead, Steve. Steve. No, finish it up. Well, I was just going to say, I think you can even take this press release idea even further. And so when we talk about being referable, so, I mean, the way, the way I think about your podcast, I love the name Becoming Referrable because to me it's about building a business that is referral worthy. And I think the things that we're talking about here are becoming referral worthy, becoming referrable. And so I think you can take this press release idea and don't just write one glowing testimonial. I would say take a look at your top 10 clients and write a testimonial that based on what you have done for those top 10 clients over the past year or past two years or the time that you've been working with them. And so that is going to force you to ask yourself, what have I really done for my biggest yeah, clients? That's what a great point. impact have I really made in their lives? And if you're struggling with coming up with a glowing testimonial for your top 10 clients, then you probably don't have a referral worthy business. And so, um, and if you can come up with 10 glowing testimonials, then I would say, oh my gosh, let's do more of this. How can we do more of this for more people? And where can we find these people? And how can we get these 10 people that we've done this amazing thing for to go out and sing our praises to other people just like them? That's that, that that's a great idea. I really like that a lot, Steve. And, and you know, <clears throat> There's a lot more that we would love to talk with you about, but I think that's we're up against time, and I think that's a 
that would be a natural place to wrap up. So um, first, I should say, as, as I've done advisory boards around the country, some advisors have uh, been evaluating or signed on to your return on life product. And we've actually shown that to advisory boards and people love it. So if all of you listeners out there, if you have not seen the ROL um, system, I, I, I would encourage that. But Steve, you know, if people want to know more about you and what you do, uh, where can they look? Yeah, well, I appreciate that. So uh, I would say a couple things. So one is go to stevesandusky.com, and that's my main site where you can get all my info, and that's S-T-E-V-E-S-A-N-D-U-S-K-I.com. And when you go there, I would think the first thing that I'd like you to do is just register for my free letter. So every Tuesday, I send out a letter. It's a curated list of the things I'm thinking about, my latest ideas, I typically have three links that I share as well based on things that I've read that week. And it's just a nice way to, to stay in touch with what I'm doing. And you can always reply to that email and, and get directly to me as well. So would love to have you go there. Of course, would love to subscribe to the podcast. And then you mentioned ROL Advisor. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, you can just go to roladvisor.com and get all the info there too. Well, that is wonderful. Yeah. So, Steve, thank you so much for joining us. It's been great talking with you. Hope to see you out on the uh, conference circuit sometime soon. And thanks so much for being a great guest. Well, I appreciate it, guys. Again, thank you for the great work that you two are doing in the industry and love the podcast and just uh, appreciate the opportunity to be on the show today. Take care. Thanks. Hey, folks, Steve again. Thanks for joining us on Becoming Referrable. If you like what you've been hearing, please do us a favor and rate us on iTunes. It really helps. You can get all the links, show notes, and other tidbits from these episodes at becomingreferrable.com. You can also get our free report, Three Referral Myths That Limit Your Growth, and connect with our blogs and other resources. So until next time, so long.